Dirt, a Go Loud original. This is Dirt with Dermot. And Paul. He's not here. But Paul is not here. Paul is gallivanting. Paul is having a well-earned break. A, a really well-earned break. He is climbing mountains in Scotland. And we didn't really know that last week, so we kind of said that we would be doing planning the garden, your garden, one's garden for next year, that we'd do that this episode. But we'll do it next week. So Paul keeps us on a need-to-know basis and he's always been good like that because all sorts of mysterious stuff can be happening in Paul's life and I only find out when I when he reckons I need to know, which is fair enough. Yeah, some people operate like that. It's a good way to operate. He's very open. On the other hand, he's very private. So because Paul is away and we can talk gardening, but I thought it might be a really fun opportunity to interview you. Might be fun for you, Aideen. Yes. And all the other people who tune in and watch your garden conversations every day. Yeah. So that's interesting because you've just sprung this on me and I had come in here with a plan to tell my go-to story um, when everything else falls apart. And I know I can hold an audience with that story and because you know me now a little bit yeah a little bit not not very well but definitely you have said things you know i over i've been editing how many podcasts now 14 so you've dropped little nuggets here and there that i think oh that's interesting must ask him about that someday and i um i I don't know if i'm kind of master at letting out so much but keeping in a lot because it's a survival mechanism, isn't it? And why do you feel, oh God, we're jumping straight in here. Why do you have that survival mechanism? For a few different reasons. Primarily, though, I'm married to Justine. She's very elegant. And if I hadn't entered that union, I might be a lot more open about stuff, with stuff, She's kept me on the kind of straight and narrow and I might be in jail. I might be, God knows what I'd be doing uh, if it wasn't for her. So it's always good to have that voice, that little bit of elegance uh, in the background. Mind you, she did appear on, um, what's that dreadful ITV program? Oh, All Stars, <laughs> Mr and Mrs. Really? <laughs> Swearing she would do absolute. We did a six by one hour documentary for BBC Two based in our house, like, a bit like the Osmonds. She wouldn't appear once and then the director rings me a couple of years later. I'm watching ITV and I see Justin in a boot with headphones on listening to I'm horny, 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 <laughs> which is the tune they play when they don't want you to hear your partner's answers. Oh, OK, yes. And now I remember that game show. Yeah, so they put you in a booth. Yeah. Put music on so you yeah. can't hear what the other person's answers are and they have to come out and guess what you said about them. Yeah, so she has a price. Obviously, Steve Poole wouldn't pay her enough to appear in the documentary. <laughs> but that is fair enough because obviously people in the public eye have to protect the privacy of their families because they're not in the public eye and they haven't chosen to be. And also, I think I have very definite ideas and I've never been scared of... Um, confronting situations and people and um, confronting issues within my industry and outside the industry. But you have to be a little bit careful when you do that and know when to pull back because you might lose your career. Well, you know, this segs very nicely into the story you were planning to tell because you definitely put it up to Chelsea a lot. So what Aideen is talking about is the Royal Horticultural Society's preeminent flower show, which generally takes place in the spring, but this year took place in the autumn for the first time ever because of COVID. They missed one and they postponed one. Um, so I've had a long relationship with that flower show. And I've always been, maybe because of conditions of the way that I was brought up, I've always believed in questioning everything, even stuff that I'm heavily involved in. I wouldn't like everybody to question everything about me, but there you go. <laughs> Here we are. So where did that come from, your your sort of journalistic mind? The suspicion. It came from, in, ter in terms of the Chelsea Flower Show, it came from my experience of the first year. 
and believing in some of it and not believing in the rest of it, but using it as a basis to build something. Um, so using the show for my aims, but never been scared to speak out about what I felt wasn't right um, or how things might improve or be a little bit different. And when you do that in Chelsea, of course, you're coming up against authority and in this case, authority in a different country. But if you go to the Chelsea Flower Show, if you're there during press day or if you have any kind of deeper involvement than just being a member or going to a show, you do come into contact with politicians, um, right up to the Prime Minister, to aristocracy, right up to Her Majesty, and uh, all of the people who run that organisation. So it can't help. You do feel you're at the you're visiting the top of British society, and it's good to have, I think, an opinion and know yourself. I do get caught up in it, and I do get caught up in the showbiz, including the royalty side of things. And I do get swept away with that uh, uh, a, a little bit, but maybe that's only natural. But, you know, it's left me with certain thoughts and feelings after I've been involved for 20 odd years. Does this tie in with the story you were going to tell? No, the story I was going to tell, I think, is all about being lonely and very much alone and homeless in Dublin, couch surfing and, and whatever, but been very alone inside and how I changed that by creating a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show. Almost from nothing, just by sheer force of personality. Force of personality is a double-edged sword. It is great because it can carry you. But my sort of personality is one that can bring along other people for the ride. And that can be a dangerous thing, hmm. I think, because I'm very persuasive. <laughs> so what... What were the conditions that led you to couch surfing or being, you know, functionally homeless at that stage? I was brought up in Dublin in a repressed society, in a, in a repressed country, repressed by church and state. And that had been going on for hundreds of years in this country and it wasn't something that I bought into I don't know I was a loner growing up I don't know why I hadn't bought into it maybe some family circumstances there was a bit of rebellion going on there um, some tragedy in the family which led me to being uh, kind of more of a loner unhappiness in the family which again caused me to withdraw and then some individual thought spurred on by maybe contemporary art, rock and roll, whatever the pop culture influences were, and deciding that I should make up my own mind about things. So that also led into my career in horticulture, my career in gardening. I wasn't going to leave that thought process beside behind when I decided to become a garden designer. Interesting. So what were the pop culture influences then, do you think, that turned you onto this world outside? It was Top of the Pops, wasn't it? It was The Face magazine, it was NME, it was anger, it was creativity, it was expression of joy, of excitement, of frustration, of loneliness, all of these things. What really got me was the idea of New York. I was never allowed to go to New York, so I didn't have that student experience. Um, but, you know, I was seeing punk and post-punk, Ramones, Blondie, whatever it was. And the idea that there was an angry, gritty place that, and out of that could come graffiti on walls or, um, you know, uh, Debbie Harry dressed up in a bin liner um, making a video in a warehouse downtown somewhere. All, everybody at that stage credit Rendatelli on a Thursday evening to watch Top of the Pops. Good evening, welcome to Top of the Pops. And Culture Club are number one again with Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? <laughs> And would see Boy George or somebody like that and go, oh my what the God. heck? What is What a pervert. That? Um, 
But no, I didn't have. And outwardly, I wasn't into that either. You wouldn't have known from me that I might have been interested. And I was kind of, I don't want to get too deep into that because I'm kind of superficially interested. So it didn't run into, because, like, I wouldn't have got a skateboard and gone into Temple Bar or been a bull boy, you know, drinking or drugging or uh, any of that. So it was all superficial. Well, it wasn't superficial because obviously it affected me and it's um, it, it helped me think differently about gardens. Was that a strange thing for a young fella to be into? I was regarded as very strange by everybody, virtually everybody, because I was a, sh- a loner. I was unbelievably shy, you know, paranoid uh, if anybody looked at me and you know, I go bright red I had some advantages I also I wasn't scared of hard work I was very frustrated as a youngster not been trusted to get on with things or do things or not really been allowed to have ambition because I had it and I had a kind of steel backbone to know that even if I was treated as somebody who was in quotation, stupid, and that is the way I was uh, treated. Um, family, friends, authorities, school, everybody like that. I just reckon none of them understood and that I was okay. Because you didn't have good academic grades or why? where did that attitude come from? Maybe because I was a dreamer, but we need dreamers. Um, but dreamers weren't appreciated if you have parents who have had to leave school at 14 and then when they were in their early 20s go off to London to find uh, jobs and a dad who held down three full-time jobs and put himself through college at night to be a dreamer <laughs> wasn't going to cut the mustard. And I understand that um, and I admire that work ethic, all of that. But none of that was me. So was it anyone in your family that influenced the gardening career? No, nobody in the family influenced the gardening career. I think in the family they want you to study hard and get a job in a bank or one of those traditional in an insurance company, permanent pensionable job and not to have dreams. So you spoke on this podcast about the Mrs. Pegman's garden on the Ballyboden Road. Was that the first garden that turned your head that made you think, ooh, I'll... I'm interested in this as an expression of art. No, that's a touch point. So that's a glib. Um, I would have been slightly dishonest about that because it works well in in, in lectures. It's a glib um, reference point to something that was different. I did enjoy it. And over the generations, I kept going back to it because it really did inspire me. But um, it wouldn't have shown me any hope. It would have shown me brief glimpses of, of, of joy. And then when I was more into the intellectual side of garden style and garden trends, I certainly would have read something else into it and found something else into it in latter years. But now growing up, I was fascinated by where I lived, by suburbia, by pebble dash, by how people lived Um by the village that I, I lived in, by the fact that there was an old castle there. Fascinated, not particularly an enjoyable fascination, just really interested in my built and planted environment as I walked to school every day. And I was thinking different things to all the other kids. I wasn't interested in Leeds United or Man United or whatever. I was interested in something that was... Things that were creative. We had a book on design or on furniture or something like that. And then there was an exhibition in London called A Sense of Ireland. And I had the catalogue from that. And there were performance artists, a guy called Nigel Rolfe and whatever. All of that stuff would have uh, really had an effect on me. And people breaking out of Ireland. So whether it was the visceral effect of... Bob Geldof on top of the pups giving out and been so angry as a young man uh, I would kick against institutions of any sort just because they're institutions I think that's reason enough um, once an idea becomes institutionalised it's dead because it becomes uh, moribund and it doesn't matter what institution even if it's like uh, supposedly a hip line of thought or something like that I'll just purposely kick it and it's in my nature to kick against that mm. and um, laterally Sinead or not laterally but after that subsequently Sinead 
Sinead O'Connor. Sinead O'Connor. Uh, all of that pop culture seemed to be honest to me. So London had its version of that with the Pistols and the Clash New York with the Ramones and kind of Blondie who didn't really fit into the, the you know, were more arty-farty than the visceral anger. But to see Geldof on top, uh, oh, sorry, uh, with Gayburn on the Late Late Show speaking about his experience had a huge effect on me. And then you two coming along and deciding to, making peace with all that from home and doing it from home had a huge effect on me. And I decided to take those inspirations as my inspiration. There was a way you could, in your own chosen art or creative form, go and do it. But it's quite remarkable that you would put that together with gardening. You know, that's not... It shouldn't be. No, but in the cultural context of the time, it's very interesting that you, you know, took those influences and then your creative expression was gardening. Like, when did those two dovetail? If you're really fascinated by pop culture, if you're really into that, whatever element, if you see rap for the first time, again on top of the pops, it's a different form of expression, isn't it? It's if you see people dressing different, you might not want to do it yourself, but you wonder about the process. You don't wonder too much into it. And you're a bore. You're you, you think it's horrendous. The same as everybody else, the same as your mother initially. And then you look into it a little bit more and you confront your own prejudice about any of these things. If you're. Many people don't, though, Dermot. They don't confront the prejudice or, you know, examine why they feel that way about something. Well, you know, I loved outdoors. I love plants. I love gardening. We were all packed into the car at the weekends or for our holidays and brought around Ireland and Britain and shown the uh, and we were shown the natural world. We we had a park very near us, and I couldn't see any reason for the separation of the two, no reason whatsoever. Indeed, I thought, and maybe still think, that gardening and garden design was more creative than any of these other disciplines. And therefore, I was confused as to why it should be divorced from those other disciplines, why influence wasn't allowed to be taken. And I would still feel that way. And it is a little bit of a lonely, you know, I've gone on about this and nobody really understands what um, I'm on about because maybe I don't explain it very well. Unless you're producing something that's true, something that's true to you, how you feel, unless you can chart your influence and through that have original thought and recognise original thought in a discipline, what's the point? So I wade through all the rest. I act as a, you know, Dave Fanning is always, he he giggles at this celebrity gardener uh, because he knows it's the phrase that bugs me more than any, except when Dave says it. But you sit in TV studios, you go to TV3, you do the Late Late Show, you do all these things and Ireland's Battle and this. Uh, it's so not me. So I act my way through a lot of life and then there's this other thing and it's this other thing that occasionally gets out and allows me to express myself. And even if nobody else understands it, I get to do it. So I have a plan for something that I want to do in the future. The only place to do it will be the Chelsea Flower Show. And for years that will fuel me, the desire to create this thing and to say something through this exhibit. It will have nothing to do with any other exhibit that's there because I look at gardens and displays in the marquee and outside it's just not me. I knew the first year I went, it's just not me. But I also knew that this was the place that I could say what I wanted to say. When I got a chance to say it, I wasn't very good at saying it and I didn't have much to say because I was young and didn't have the experience or didn't really believe in myself. But now I'm in a, in a different place. It's just as hard now to say anything new through your exhibits, through your gardens, but it should be hard because maybe art or creativity is born out of that. 
A struggle is such a, you know, when I drive a nice car, when I live in a lovely house, when I have a lovely family, when all the flowers in my garden are very pretty. It's very hard to say struggle, but I know what my needs and my desires in that respect are. So when you try to articulate struggle then, you know, when you talk about that you have this nice life now, how do you do it? Well, again, I'd be guarded about my life because... It's no, but if you want to articulate struggle and kind of demonstrate that to people, is it your struggle or are you choosing somebody out there and go, that is a story I can tell in a garden? I think if I have a design that I really want to get out there, and there's very few, there are some that are pretty and just interesting. There are some that are fun, like flying gardens. Who cares? But it does challenge things a little bit. And then there are some that are really visceral to me. Is that like political injustice or... I'm just trying to get a sense of, of what... It might be just pure creativity and then there might be layers of it that say things about something. And that's, okay. you know, that, that, that's one. And yet fit in. They're quite clever because they fit into uh, a history and a tradition of garden, aristocratic garden design and explorers and, uh, and whatever. So clever that way. But I know that I want to do it. And I know I want to build it. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. Go out! Go out! The other thing I'd say is, I started off by saying, you know, couch surfing and everything, everything like that. And I've had an extraordinary life because I broke out of that and I was an overnight cessation at one stage. And was it overnight? Yeah, it was It was overnight to everybody else. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like in the background, I'm sure it oh, wasn't yeah, to it you. Oh yeah, it was one day to change everything. One moment to change absolutely everything. Um, but I'm always just an inch away from where I was back on the couch. In every way. You always feel like that could be taken away from you yeah, at any and, moment. Yeah, and f- fine. I don't care if most of it is taken away. I'd, I really don't care. It'd be better if it wasn't. But I don't care if most of it is taken away because once you know what drives you, there's a lot of fuel in that. Mm, what is it that drives you? Well, it's that. You isn't particularly. It? It's to create. Okay. It, it's to build, it's to create, it's to plant, it's to inspire, it's to make people think. Those that the inspire and the uh, make people think things is, is, is a real joy. And I know that works. And when you're in a room or talking to people or even occasionally doing the Instagram thing, when people get what you're saying or when it causes people to question or really enhances their experience of something, that's really wonderful and I really, really love that. There are very few things that I really, really love. So that, the teaching and the inspiring, I learned early that I could do that and now to have thoughts that can fuel that is really good, is, is, is really nice. And to have examples, to be, to put myself in the position that people will back me to do certain things and then to explain why I've done it. And of course, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, we do pretty gardens all the time. We do very nice gardens all the time. I can do that with my eyes closed. But if you can do that, the desire to do that continually lessens. If it's second nature to you, I understand it. I understand plants, I understand soil, I understand all the other um, stuff. But I need something different to satisfy myself. And it is first and foremost myself creatively. You mentioned there, there was a moment when we were talking about the overnight success, there was a moment that changed everything. What was it? So I had created my first garden at the Chelsea Flower Show and nobody noticed which was fine because we got there it's a bit like running the festival with Paul the other way we got there (laughs) it was done it was successful we got there we cleaned up we came home and we sat in the pub again and said did we really do that and when I sat in the pub there were two girls there in the pub listening to this story um, Anita Natara and Ursula Courtney and Ursula said to me she, uh, we were telling, myself and my mate were telling these two girls about the story of going over to this thing in London and, you know, 
uh, the centre of world gardening and achieving, i.e. building the garden and all the pitfalls and everything we'd come up against. And against all the odds, we had persevered and whatever. Uh, Ursula rang me the following... What year is this, by the way, Dermot? 1995. Okay. Ursula rang me the following day and said, was that true? I said, what? You're sorry about going to London with that garden thing and doing it? I said, yes. She said, was everything true? Because that's a hell of a story. I said, yes. She said, I didn't tell you last night. I'm a researcher for the Late Late Show. And she, she said, "We, I have the premiere of Newfoundland booked um, for next Saturday night's show. But I think he's going to be a little bit boring. If I can talk to Gay and get him bumped off, would you come on and tell the story the way? I said, yeah. And so the following Saturday night, actually the following Saturday, I found myself driving around the city in my battered old van listening to the premiere of Newfoundland telling brilliant stories on the the radio. (laughs) So he got himself a radio gig and he was a brilliant raconteur and whatever I'm feeling. And then that night I'm in, you know, Donnybrook and the family and friends are in the audience and I'm telling the story of us doing a, doing a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show and it came to people's attention for or I came to people I don't think they'd ever had a gardener uh, on and I got a bit of sponsorship to go back and do my second garden so my first garden at Chelsea in 1995 had been what you'd expect from an Irish garden at Chelsea based on a Yeats poem um, a phrase to the waters in the wild whimsy Soulful, pretty, green, uh, runes, stone tower reflected in a pond and whatever. Didn't mean anything to me when I designed it, give them what they want, with the idea they might invite me back for a second year and then I'd go all MTV and whatever. It did the job, got a little bit of notice, especially back home. I got the support, some support to go back for a second year. And this was when I was going to change the world of garden design. And I based the garden around something I'd seen in the pod nightclub, place of dance. Um, when you went into the men's loose, uh, there was a mirror. You peed against a mirror that had water falling down. <coughs> I thought, with a couple of Guinness on me, I thought, that's oh, cool. Gosh. And I imagined big Dixonias and hostas. And big Dixonias! <laughs> in front of that. Uh, tree ferns <laughs> and then the Michael Jackson video do you remember he danced down the street Billy Jean yes and every time his foot touched the pavement it illuminated and I thought right these are contemporary influences one from a Dublin nightclub the other from straight from Hollywood and pop culture and that thriller album really it made you want to move and I combined that, those ideas into a garden that was kind of computerised and we went off to London and created it. And remember, this was what I really wanted to do and it just didn't work. And while I was building it, I knew it was a disaster and it didn't work. And people were coming and looking at it for a moment as we were building it. And you could see that it was going nowhere and that kind of I was going nowhere so I was having my chance for the second time to make my dreams come true I'd got there I got the invite back I was doing what I said to myself in my head I always wanted to do and I couldn't hack it and I there was a, a great young lad Vincent Barnes helping me out I was just arguing with him all the time it was a bloody disaster and the BBC were filming something on young gardens at Chelsea, young gardeners at Chelsea this year, and they wanted to put me into that package, and it was a bit embarrassing because of the garden. Alan Tishmarsh came around to film the piece. I have to say, I don't really understand this garden, David. What's it all about? I think it's a typical English country garden, is it not? I think it's a typical Irish country garden. <laughs> well, maybe. It's, I think it's a garden with a bit of passion in it. Uh, it's the idea of using different materials like these glass slabs as paving, which light up at night uh, when you stand on them. We have a glass brick wall with stainless steel, which curves at the back. And they have climbing to say, plants. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of a gent's loop. Well, it, it does really, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? Actually, the inspiration for it was from a nightclub in Dublin called The Pod. And uh, they have water running down full-length mirrors when you go into this, so that's where that came from. And influences should come from everywhere. So really the best time to view this particular garden is at night? 
Yeah, well, during the day, it's, it's I hope, very 1930s, very elegant, very restrained. And then at night, it's full of fashion with all these lights and all these weird shapes being thrown up. I love it at night. I better come back later. You better see it then. Yeah. And it, I hated it. It was awful. And I remember leaving Chelsea. This piece was to go out in Gardner's World on the Wednesday evening. And I remember leaving Chelsea on the night that it was finished and the medals were to be awarded the following day, thinking, that's just, it's embarrassing. I've come over from Dublin and I've embarrassed myself. And there was no lower feeling. And I rang Vincent, who was at the garden, on the way in from a coin box, say, what medal did we get? And we got no medal. So everything was confirmed. And it's impossible not to get a medal. He said, there was a letter here from they said they don't understand this, this exhibit and we're not up to standard and whatever. And that was humiliating. And then to film this thing that day with Alan and show Alan the Gardener, who was never going to like this contemporary thing. But we gathered in a hotel room on the Wednesday night to watch this programme go out. And there was a bit of a thrill because I'd done the late lap, but this was the UK on telly on one of their main uh, shows. And Alan comes along, he sees the garden, he obviously doesn't know what to make of it. I tell him it lights up like a nightclub and a la Michael Jackson stepping on the paving stones, they will light up because of pressure. Power. He says he'll come back and look at it later. He doesn't, but they film me in the garden as it grows dark. They show this video package, Alan in the garden, obviously not liking it. The show ends with Alan going into a very traditional English garden with a chamomile bed, an actual bed made of chamomile. Chamomile is a beautiful herb with the most unbelievable scent. And he lies down on this bed and he starts to dream of all the things that he's seen and loved at Chelsea that year. Our garden isn't in the dreams sequence. And then the credits roll. And after the credits rolled, it came back to me standing Billy Nomad's going dark in the garden and all the lights coming on and my voice says where's Alan he'll never know what he missed uh, where's Alan he'll never know what he missed and I watch it and I hated it you know the way you hate yourself on a voice machine on, on a telly on anything but I went back to Chelsea the following morning and the security guard outside a black dude stopping me checking for my tickets whatever said you're that guy from last night I said what guy you you was on the telly last night that garden is way cool and I went and the crowds were around the garden and everything changed from that moment because where in reality it didn't look right it didn't work it was made for television and it was a new idea and all of a sudden that day, nobody had ever asked me to do anything in my life. It was always me. And from that day, everything changed. That moment, everything changed. You're getting a bit emotional thinking about it. It's weird to have that happen and not to have a voice and then all of a sudden not to understand. Nobody had ever said you're good at anything. And then that wasn't a good garden. But I had worked the system and I'd created something that people through television had, it had an effect on people and it signified a change, even though it wasn't very good. And all of a sudden I had people saying, will you do this? That very day, people said to me, will you do this? The BBC made that programme. Yeah. So whoever was editing that saw the story. You know, they, they obviously edited that programme in the way that they did. Yeah. And you were in the closing credits and yeah. it was obviously powerful to them watching. I mean, they saw something. And I tell you, it's even worse. Funny you say that, Adrian, because it's even, it's even worse than that. Because I know who was editing because she stood beside me as the sun was going down. All my friends were over from Dublin. They were out partying in London. I was standing there until it got dark in Chelsea. And this woman says to me, I want you to say these words. Where's Alan? He'll never know what he missed. I says, I'm not saying them because it's, I said it's too stage Irish or it's a, you know, whatever bloody issues from me as a nobody. And she said, listen, son, 
I was born in Leinster Road in Ratmon, she says, with her Brummy accent. Sight him. And that was it. It was just that little expression that got with Alan not been there. She saw something. And then everybody saw something at the same time because within, within the year I'd made programmes. Within the year. Remember, nobody has ever asked me to do anything. Within the year I'd made programmes for BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, local ITVs, Channel 4. And I'd started, it was a year before Channel 5 started and a year before I started making their first gardening series called Virgin Gardens. So all of a sudden it came like, it came like that. And after a year, somebody, a guy called Simon Shaw, rang me or emailed me or something like that and said, I don't know if you're, most of my stuff wasn't out yet. I don't know if you're doing that, but I saw you at on this show and he was working with a producer called Daisy Goodwin and they said we do this show called Homefront and would you you know like to do this what you did at Chelsea for real with proper budgets and and whatever and I did that for eight years with Kevin McLeod uh, initially then I took over the show I wanted to be a white garden I wanted to be white smart. I wanted to be smooth I wanted to be a garden that you feel you could roll around in so in this area here I want to create a cave at the end of the garden that gets away from that restricted shape at the, at the end. I want a bed here with plants that are real drama queens, you know, and there's palms dripping out of it, yeah? And there's a hole in the middle of it. And you can go down to an igloo. Wow. An igloo? <laughs> an igloo. Yeah, wow. <laughs> really? And then we took over the main interior show, myself and Laurel, and my life slowly changed. Well, my my life dramatically changed. But then slowly people got to know about me and, you know, it became very rock and roll. So what did that first year entail? Was there a lot of, um, well, hey, I'm famous and partying? No. This was the 90s, wasn't it? No, there was the first year, no, there was a lot of confusion. People say I'm good at this. People say I'm good on camera. What does that mean? There was a lot of overanalyzing. There was a lot of travel. There was a lot of just being on endless trains around Britain with printed out schedules, page after page after page. There was a lot of being late for things. The shyness was still there. What do I do? Why do these people want me? Nobody knew who I was, but I was the new kid in the box. And then all of a sudden, there was a lot of whining and dining from television executives. There was a lot of been brought when you had a few hours off been brought to expensive restaurants with people selling you concepts and ideas the turnaround from uh, and I'm talking kind of the best restaurants where you know for the first few months I didn't have clothes I had no money I was cold in London maybe over in London with a shirt and uh, and whatever there was a lot of weirdness there was a lot of strangeness there was a lot of feeling out of place but these people telling you what to do there was a lot of then dragging suitcases because I have to have 30 shirts that companies would buy for me and stylists and that it was very confusing and then I found my after a while there was a lot of not being trusted to do not being allowed okay you were great at Chelsea but you're not designing this garden we'll get somebody to design the garden and you pretend you've designed it on this particular television program there were some people saying you have to go for elocution lessons. <laughs> and then there were other people saying, no, this is what we, you are yourself. This is what we love. So there was a lot of pulling in different directions. There was, you know, signing up with agents. There was um, a lot of being alone, being, you know, ta- been with one production team, been sent on a train to another, meeting new people, not really understanding this Life I'd never lived in Britain. I wouldn't get home for months. So very, very strange. Did you take the elocution lessons? I didn't. I talked to... So this was a good deal, deal later. And this that, that was Daisy Godwin, who ended up... Going, she did all the makeup. She wrote Grand Designs. She ended up being a novelist. She wrote Young Victoria, you know, that... Uh, but then I talked to... I ended up fairly fast having the best promoter anybody could get. This was the controller of BBC Two, a woman called Jane Root. And I was at the top table in the BBC. And literally, I was at the top table, whether it was in her office high in television centre or in the restaurants, advising on the future of BBC along with Jamie Oliver and Louis Theroux and all the It was an extraordinary time. 
And I told Jane what Daisy had said. And, uh, Jane said, absolutely not. Absolutely. You are raw. You are fresh. You are uh, a new lease of life for this industry. You're exactly what's needed, exactly the way you are. She gave me lots of leeway, maybe too much leeway. And I was seen as the golden boy and hence been brought out to dinner by a, every executive from every channel, every TV company. It was a surreal life to go from nothing to that was a very strange and not entirely comfortable, you know, but you learn yourself, you begin to relax into it and you learn what you like. You make great friends and oh, funny. So you'd been watching Top of the Pops when you were growing up mm. and you saw what, you know, adoration looked like and mm. rock and roll. When was the moment when you were like, oh, I'm at that table. I I made it. The moment everything grew quietly and slowly. So your programmes went out and people began to notice you and there were reviews and people started, autographs were a big thing. Sort of, but it grew so slowly and we worked so hard at what we were doing that there was a definite um, division in, because I was a little bit older, I was 30, 31, 32, 33 at that stage. It grew nice and gently and in general I was able to handle it. But all of a sudden you were, the rock and rollers really loved us. So we were invited every year to, I was invited every year, I used to bring my cousin who was he worked for Q magazine. He was a rock and roll photographer and Vogue and stuff like that. So we'd go to the Hootenanny with Jules Holland at Television Centre. Television Centre was my home. It was literally my home. I had keys for the place. It was hilarious. I could walk wherever I wanted with, with my zapper around it. Um, it dawned on you when you were at parties in Buckingham Palace where you f were friends with people that you never expected. You would know where you were at parties at the Irish Embassy. I had an extraordinary thing. You'd walk into a room and everybody would turn to look at you. And you're a gardener from television, but you're the Irish person of the day in situations. It dawned on me when Ken Livingstone was mayor of London and he was putting on the first gig for, in Trafalgar Square for Irish people, uh, prayed, and a massive gig. So when you were been sent out to introduce music acts like... Ronnie Drew and the Dubliners in Trafalgar Square and there's 20,000 people and you're practising giggling, you know, in bed at home with your wife what you were going to say, hello London! <laughs> it dawned on me kind of then when you're drinking champagne in the ivy and spotting everybody and when the Labour Party groom you to do a party political broadcast with uh, the landlady of the Rover's Return. All of these sort of things. When you go to a party, a Christmas party, in the embassy, in the Irish embassy in London, and a military guy comes and taps you on the shoulder and said, uh, Mr. Gavin, could you follow me? And he brings you through back stairways and uh, corridors in the embassy. And you go up to the attic and you have the Irish military and the British military having their Christmas party. Side by side. The military loved us. I used to get asked to go out to places like Afghanistan by the British military because the boys out fighting absolutely loved us on So you'd have been like Jane around. Russell or Marilyn Monroe brought was, out to boost the morale. Weird. <laughs> it was weird. And you'd be up and, uh, is this really happening? And the naughtiness I'd get up to because generally I would bring my mates from home to these places. The family would come over to all these parties. You could go anywhere and do anything. I remember arriving at <laughs> Radio 1 with a bottle of champagne um, and a couple of glasses for, it wasn't Zoe Ball, who, who else does? Joe, what's her name? Joe Wiley. Joe Wiley. So I arrived in to her on a particularly heady time for me when I had loads of programmes on and whatever and I was driving a uh, convertible Jaguar through London, roof down, camera crew in the back, about to launch a book, going into Joe Wiley for her programme with a bottle of chilled champagne and two glasses. And she says, you know, in all the time I've been doing things, no rocker has ever brought champagne. And we got merry on air and whatever. I could, it was the big breakfast. It was 
presenting Top of the Pops, it was having every experience you ever imagined as a rock and roll gardener. Didn't really affect me, it didn't really, because I was that little bit older, but I enjoyed it. The fun of it. Well, the 90s was a massive cultural renaissance. It was a very exciting time to be doing what you were doing. Yeah, it was it was quite extraordinary because you got to meet everybody. You were talking about the Labour Party there. They they were recruiting no the, the Gallagher brothers and yeah. people to make them like yeah. they wanted to associate I was there all that time. They wanted to associate themselves with by proximity. Cool Britannia. Exactly. So now I wasn't in that group. I got to the verges of that group with Charlene Spiteri and uh, one of the Freud girls, Bella Freud, the fashion designer. So I'd mix with some of them at certain uh, events. I wasn't in at that party in Downing Street where it was all cool Britannia, but I did. I did a lot with the Labour Party, and then I went to when Tony Blair was um, Prime Minister. And it was very funny. I remember sitting with Sherry Blair and I was telling her that my father-in-law knew her because he was Chief Justice here and they had been on some working group together. And she looked me up and I said, you know my father. She said, how is he your father? <laughs> how is he your father? And then I went to one conference with the Labour Party and it was in the middle of the Iraq War and it was their annual day. It was a dinner in the Dorchester in Park Lane. And the Iraq war was never mentioned. Really? At this black tie dinner. God. It was never mentioned at their annual. So this was their fun time, their party time, their whatever. It was never mentioned. God, talk about the disconnect. I really felt that. I, I really felt that very strongly at that stage. On the other hand, you know, I was able to bring my mum loved Tony Blair. I was able to bring her to meet Tony Blair in Downing Street. That's quite something. So I played that game. I was able to bring the father-in-law to Admiralty Arch to meet Margaret Beckett, who was, I don't know if she, she wasn't Home Secretary, but she was something like that. The The fun stuff was mad. The movie star and the pop star stuff was mad. The aristocracy stuff was mad. But it was a phase and... I was going to ask you that. Was this the time of your life that you gave yourself over to it and gardening got lost a little bit at that no, point? No, no. Gardening never got lost and work never got lost. I was very disciplined about that. I loved being given the opportunity. It did go, get a little bit mad, all right, and it was very high octane. And when you have successful programmes, the BBC just want more and more and more. And I was, I've just been worked to such an extent that we would plan my diary I'd plan my diary with researchers I might be doing two or three series at the same time none of our gardens were small things and I remember uh, I always wanted to plant or be in charge of planting the gardens myself and I remember going on a train trip or a car trip with one researcher one day and we were working out that I would arrive at a certain garden at nine o'clock one evening and it would have to be planted by midday the following day and I said to her should I take tell me about cocaine should I take this would this help me Drew because I don't and we had this discussion about me she wasn't endorsing it in any way it was my question and I didn't but that's how that's how wild it got because these were my hours to plant gardens when I was working gardens I didn't party I didn't do any of that when I was off I partied so while you were asking that because you were so burnt out you needed to kind of get through it or? Well there, were, there weren't enough hours in the day to do what needed to be done and it did come to a point it came to a very infamous point for me and my uh, circle that it was before the days of Google Maps or uh, and I was driving along and I was late and I couldn't I was using the A to Z to try and find an address in London and I couldn't find this and I was an hour and a half late and there were camera crews waiting for me and maybe this happened quite a bit but it came to burnout and I just rang the agent and I said it's enough, I can't do it I was in bits and um, I had a friend who was building one of these gardens way up not way up north, about an hour and a half uh, further north I think in Derby or someplace and the agent rang him he came down to see me and he said to me, 
do you want to go for a pint? And I, as I say, was very strict about not doing these sort of things. Uh, but that was the moment, and we went for a pint on, in a pub in Portobello Road, and we looked at each other and we said, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And we went to the airport there and then from that pub and went to Dublin for another pint. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to say, and that was it with me and drink. No, you went for another pint. Went there. for another pint and the agent sent over his son, Nick, to join us that night to keep an eye. And I knew that was it. I was done. It was too much. Um, it the, the, the work output was too much. So it's a case then of manage. You know, it grew very gently, but I, at that stage, I had to manage myself out of it and make decisions about what I wanted to do for the rest of my time. And when was this? Oh, I can't remember. So we'll, we'll say you got you went to Chelsea first in 95, but 96 was your breakthrough. And then this was maybe... So uh, 2004, 2005, okay. 2006 would have been the mad years. If I started, let's say, 96, 97, Homefront in the Garden, I did that for... 10 years so 96 so around 2004 2005 uh, but things were just, had gone crazy I mean there was one stage where I was doing this six part documentary series for BBC2 on my life I also was doing the coverage of the Chelsea Flower Show every day um, and I was had a new series coming out on BBC Two, so we had three programs in BBC Two. I had three programs in the top ten ratings in BBC Two. It's just too much. And then I signed up for Strictly Condensed. Yes, what a gardening lesson you've had, right? Just there, just there. And it feel good? Fantastic. You enjoyed it, didn't you, Dermot? You were in there, right? Okay, fine. Now then, Craig, start us off. Hi, uh, Nicole. I think you're terrific, uh, Dermot. You um, are clumsy. You blundered your way through that. You possess absolutely no natural rhythm whatsoever. I'm uh, really sorry about that. He's got his own rhythm, you see. Yes. His own rhythm. Yes. OK, Ali, what do you think? Just too much. Well, you did have a very big, profound change in your life then, which then, would have naturally curbed everything anyway. Yeah, yeah. Then the little one was born. Um, while I was doing Strictly, the little one was born and... You know, London was great. I was born in London, but London isn't a great place, I would think, to bring up kids. So we made the decision to come back. It took us a couple. We came back for a year, rented a house, but then went back to London for a year, and eventually we came. We came home, and uh, mind you, as soon as as soon as the baby was born, Epi was born in December, and in January I got a phone call could I go back to make another series called Garden School for uh, the BBC? So I left. Can you imagine what it's been left, been like left with a newborn? Even when the baby was born, I was in the middle of Strictly. And I said, I can't go to the, you know, Justin gave birth two days ago. I cannot go to the final show. You have to be at the final show. And this is, you know, where uh, I said, I, I just can't. I'm not leaving where Irish we're alone and plenty of friends and everything like that, but not family, not what you need. I'm not letting Justin go home to an empty house with the new baby and travelling to Blackpool. The, the final was in Blackpool those years. I'm just not doing it. And I said, we'll send a helicopter. We'll send you down in a helicopter, do the show, and we'll bring you back in a helicopter. Surreal. Wild. It was wild, but the helicopter couldn't take off on the way back. So me, Esther Ransom and Craig Revelhall or one of the others came back uh, through the night and but that was Justin had been expecting me hours earlier alone what do you do with a new baby and uh, and I was like and then as soon as I get back to Dublin can you come over and present this new series um, and I did but at that stage it wasn't all it was cracked up to be yeah and how I, did parenthood change you in that sense and how did it change your gardening which is a separate question but well it uh, parenthood changed me in that my priorities definitely changed and you know I regarded parenthood as an amazing privilege and I wasn't scared of the baby and I wasn't scared of nappies (laughs) easy very easy to say when you weren't around to change them but occasionally I do remember taking the baby in the basket to garden school maybe when we were in uh, true filming and putting her under a desk or, or whatever or 
always a woman would grab her and cuckoo over her or whatever, but she'd be in that Jaguar beside me on the front I just did it, got on with it. But after a while, I decided, look, it was either parenthood uh, and work or parenthood and continue partying. So I decided to stop the partying and to value whenever I got the chance to be home. So I made the decision not to party anymore, to give up alcohol and to be present when I was around. That was quite challenging in Dublin because everything, we're all socialising uh, involved around drink. But I did it and I was delighted uh, to do it. And gradually I reduced my reliance on television as kind of a way forward or a career and wanted to kind of practice privately. If you're practicing privately, you don't do the more outrageous garden. And I miss, not outrageous garden, but thought provoking gardens or whatever. And I missed that. So um, things got gentler, I suppose. And I started gardening around the world then, you know, doing gardens in Prague and in the set of France and in China and uh, all all of that. So life remained interesting. And then I'd pick and choose some television projects. And of course, you, we were entering the time of reality television. So you got the chance to do anything you wanted to do. And that really struck me because, remember, I had reached the age of 29 or 30. And nobody ever saying, would you like to? It was always me knocking on doors. And then somebody was saying, would you like to learn to ice skate, to dance? Would you like to go on mastermind? Would you like to learn to cook? Would you like to do this or that? Would you like to challenge yourself and go to um, you know, the North Pole? Would you like to do SAS? Who there's It's an extraordinary opportunity to get. And if you do any of these things, you'll meet other interesting people. So after you made that conscious decision to kind of step away from doing loads of telly, because you still, you know, you have your finger in a few pies. Where are you now mentally about it all? Well, we've had this weird year and a half, haven't we? Which stops everything and makes you think. I also have a a 16 year old now who makes me think about everything. Where am I now? I am enjoying being centred in Dublin. I'm enjoying dabbling in the other stuff so I do quite a bit of work for Channel 5 in the UK we've just made a makeover series for them I'm enjoying the new media the Instagram stuff what really opened my eyes was coming back after all that telly stuff and meeting a new younger breed of Irish gardener who were interested in soil and plants and discovery in a much more innocent Maybe slightly naive, but much more innocent way. So, and Paul would exemplify that. So I'm enjoying all of that, but more centered here, more centered on my own garden, but with the dreams of doing these big things still. Hmm. So you work, 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 even still. Yes. And I suppose. Maybe that comes back to what you mentioned earlier about you worrying about the rug being pulled from under you at any at any moment. No, it doesn't. It doesn't because, you know, if it is, it is. What it stems for, because most of the work I do is unpaid work. Most of the work I do will never be seen. The work is driven by the passion of creativity, by this need to create. And remember, I'm in a... I'm in a... In some ways, the most amazing position now because for the first 30 years of my life I had to give an excuse for myself for living for being there for existing I had to explain myself now I have an introduction wherever I go and there's opportunity that goes with that because if I look for a meeting it'll probably happen and therein lies the potential of starting balls rolling and thinking about ideas and starting up new stuff are influencing or saying to people, maybe we should think about this, that or the other. That might be about the environment. It might be about design. It might be about inspiring. And it's a lovely way to be. So the 
passion for creativity and the energy is as, and I, I would reckon at this stage is always going to be there. And that's an exciting way to live your life. You can get tired sometimes, and I certainly get tired after the the festival we did down in, in, in Kerry. But the burning ambition to do stuff, because I have this platform, is as strong or stronger than ever. So what are you dreaming about now? I'm dreaming about the, this other garden that I want to create. I want to explore the notion of building a garden school, probably with Paul and we have just come across a premises. I'm quite looking forward to the idea we have this garden to create in Marrakesh. If you've been stopped travelling, and I travelled way, 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 way too much, but if you've been stopped travelling and then you're given the ability to go and have exciting projects again, that really excites me. And kind of just doing what we do. Dirt, a Go Loud original. We didn't get to tell the Chelsea story that you initially envisaged you'd come in to tell, did we? No, we we didn't. And it's a good story. And... But I got an email the other day, which kind of bothered me. And it was from somebody young. And they want to be a garden designer. And they're 17. And they want to have a television show. This fantasy of everybody wanting television programmes at young age or fame at young age, even in gardening, really bugs me. I thought it was gone when I met people like Paul who have no interest, are amused at that sort of thing. Paul and Rory and Dara and a whole load more. But you have to base your ambition on something real something that you have to offer or an understanding of something. Ambition for its own sake is really no good. Well, that is the big danger with the young... And I'm sure you think about this in the context of having a daughter, about you can broadcast yourself now, so TV is ubiquitous in that way, even if it is in the medium of TikTok. There's still small videos and you're still appearing on a screen. And I think... What I have learned about if I ever looked at anyone who was creative, were they intrinsically motivated or extrinsically motivated? Were they extrinsically motivated by the fame, by the celebrity, by being on TV? And then were they intrinsically motivated in that they had this burning desire to create and if they didn't create, they'd fall into despair. So that's a very difficult um, notion to try and convey to a young generation who is growing up seeing people on their phone, on screens, all the time and placing the value on that as opposed to the craft of whatever, you know, they're, they're broadcasting. That's it. And if I didn't create, I was driven to a very personal despair and a very dark place. And that, is, that was so visceral to me that it powered everything else. And, but even at my stage, and people might look at me and say, it's, it's, it's okay for him. I still have those things that I really have to do, that obsess many waking moments about getting to do certain things. And they're as raw as when I was 20. And they're as real. And for me, they're important to to, to, to get out. So I think it is really important to be rooted in some reality, the reality of your craft, to understand why you want to do. But it, I would have great hope in human nature and human creativity and, you know, getting erted. And most people in gardening are erted. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. So how do you feel after that, Dermot? Um, It feels funny talking to you about it. However, in this business one spends too much time navel-gazing. quite like navel-gazing gazing for a few minutes because Paul wouldn't let me away with any of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad we've shut him in a cupboard uh, somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in Scotland. <laughs> while, while I get to say something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to ask the same questions of Paul. But we'll, we'll do that some other day. He's, he's a different character, a magnificent character. I really think you got to the nub of it just at the end there, 
just about this idea of the spare of not being able to create. Because I remember I was in Flatland at that stage and I would take, I would just take to the bed. If I was doing pretty gardens for pretty people, I could do them very well. I was half doing them. I wasn't finishing them. I was bouncing checks. Everything was going. And that was all driven by a desire to do things different. I also went through that whole thing as why do I want to be different? What is the need to say? Why am I antagonising people who like traditional gardens? And I came to the conclusion that they weren't wrong, but I wasn't wrong. And unless we intellectualise things or really understand the reason for using certain plants in a certain way or the reasons for gardening in an environmental way or the reasons for pushing design forward, we weren't moving our industry or our craft on. So that became the nub of the issue for me. And when I realised that myself and when I had worked that out and settled with it myself, I was much more relaxed. I gave myself a year to think, would I get out of this industry completely? But when I understood that, that really fueled me and uh, let me go on to do things. But you also have to play smart. Yeah, and that's something you learn over time. That's something you learn over time. And hopefully you don't piss off too many people that your 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 career is truncated. I've done that too. <laughs> that'll be that'll be Dermot part two okay. some other day. Nobody, nobody, nobody needs that. <laughs> so we didn't get around to the actual gardening this week, but I think this was a, a natural opportunity to take a little break and we will come back next week and we will talk about planning the garden for next year because I have let another year go by when my garden looks like absolute carnage and I will not let another summer go past so I will be making sure you and Paul talk us through what bulbs we should be looking at when oh, we get yeah. them into the and how now, do we get them into yeah because yeah. autumn is when all the gardening happens right for the following year yeah yeah absolutely yeah autumn is when gardening happens however your garden isn't carnage just relax there's too much guilt going around it's just it's green and weeds and a little tree trying to grow don't worry about it just don't worry about it appreciate what you have and we will help you step by step okay so we'll definitely come back to that next week so do you want to do the line that Paul does dirt is a goal letter original it drops every Monday wherever you get your podcast dirt a goal letter original go